You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Thank you to Freedom of Species, uh, who will be back next week from 2 o'clock. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR. Uh, my name is Nick Wallace. Uh, sitting across from me and pulling up a microphone is Ash Blackwell. Afternoon, folks. Uh, how You've had a bit of a ride. I missed the ride today because my stomach's feeling dodgy and I'm using yeah. a poor excuse. It's, it's a beautiful day out there. I just want to take the opportunity to uh, give a shout out to the, the young family who for the second week in a row I've seen pulling rubbish out of the Merry Creek up near the um, bridge just just south of uh, Moreland. Just south of Moreland. Yeah. North, north of north Moreland. North of Moreland, south of Bell Street. Yeah, That's I know right. the spot. Um, I've seen people... When I've been running but, as well, I saw yeah, it. it was it was you and I when we rode in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we pulled up on this bridge and we like noted all of this weird debris. There was like a tandem bike just yeah. randomly in the middle Tires, of the creek. And when we rode back in the afternoon, we saw some people pulling that very bike out. And actually, that was when you told me a story. And and we're just going to share a quick an- anecdote before we get into the into the show. But um, that was when you told me that um, there was a point at which Mary Creek nearly turned into a concrete drain. Uh, like, um, yeah. I don't even know what it's called, but so there's one over Mooney near Ponds, the... Mooney, Mooney Ponds, Ponds. Right, yeah. Right. So for... Uh regular listeners uh or anyone tuning in really like my outside of drug policy stuff my day job is actually conservation i've just left the company that i worked for for over 10 years uh doing conservation and land management and um yeah one of the interesting stories about one of the reasons why i particularly like riding down the merry creek is uh you can search out in a couple of the libraries around town. I forget which one I found it. Um, But in 1968, the Merry Creek, I think it was 68, the Merry Creek was proposed to be turned into a concrete drain, uh, really similar to the Mooney Ponds Creek. You know, you've probably seen these kinds of creeks around. It's not And it was... It's a... a, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a concrete drain. Yeah. Um, And it was a community group that pushed back against that and they actually started pulling out like it was a big community action. They started pulling out old cars and like it was pretty yeah, disgusting. There were cars in it. Like we the, saw the tires and cars, I was like, oh, that's like, gross. All, all that's how we got onto it. Nash was like, oh, there used to be cars dumped in it. I'm like, oh. So, <laughs> yeah, and you can see now there's been revegetation works going on along the Merry Creek for um, well over 40 years now and you know and it kind of shows so it's pretty nice now for, for those most, of us most of the way. you know for people that are interested in the environment for those of us that work in conservation and land management the Merry Creek is a testament to community action and how that matters for local uh, environmental landscapes um, I might just get a little bit whimsical. Yeah, yeah, whimsical. Um, <laughs> just, just want to give a shout out to uh, my colleague Joe Roberts, who's been having a bit of a rough week this week. She uh, founded um, with me Red Earth Ecology, which is the uh, ecological project of Australia's largest Burning Man regional, uh, Burning Seed, and um, yeah, over the last few years we've planted. Uh, several thousand trees creating uh, habitat corridors on local farms in the area of the festival and done some weed management on the festival grounds themselves so just a big shout out to all of the community groups uh, friends groups and people that um, get involved in environmental activity from a community level and lots of love to my friend joe 
Oh, well, this is a nice start to the show. Isn't it? It's a nice day. It's that spring weather getting into your nostrils. Although, <laughs> again, like the the bike ride, um, I I really wanted to go on the bike ride today, but as I said, dodgy tummy. I just I just wasn't sure about a few things that I didn't want to take a chance with. Uh, so I decided not to catch the uh, take the bike ride today. But um, as you come up into the city, you do get you do notice a little bit of the uh, the change in in air quality as you come into the uh, into the more uh, con- Suggested, um, built-up areas, I suppose. It smells more and, like diesel and less like trees. Yeah, and it's a it's a good reminder that the green spaces shouldn't be a token space. Um, that they should be something that we embrace more. And I'm thinking of um, uh, when I was doing I was doing the breakfast show for a year uh, on 3CR on Wednesdays uh, here on Wednesday mornings. And I highly recommend you um, listen into the breakfast show. Fantastic teams um, uh, and really really good uh, content Monday to Friday. It's 7 a.m. till 8:30 a.m. Um, and, and uh, we were talking, I think we talked with somebody from like University of Melbourne at some point about um, cities, especially uh, some of the urban design that's going on in parts of Asia uh, where they're getting rid of roads and bringing back green spaces because they realise that the, the sort of overall, of course you need to move, like it's a, it's a complicated equation, you need to be able to move people around, of course that needs to be efficient, but sometimes the best way to do that isn't to fill every area with a place where people can move around on. Sometimes it's better design in the first place Place so people don't need to move around as much, uh, things like that. Um, so you're making me want to get my plant geek on now. <laughs> so, well, yeah, if we got go, another yeah, moment, go, we'll put um, another, yeah, yeah. One, one of the one of the reasons for that is what's called the urban heat island effect, um, and that's you'll find that in pretty much every city in the world where all of those hard surfaces and roads create a, a temperature differential between the city and the suburbs of like two three degrees maybe and coming into an area where climate change is well looking more and more inevitable to uh, to some extent then um that starts to matter like once you once you increase the temperatures above what they are and then bump that up another couple of degrees and you know you can if it's a 40 degree day outside you can be on a hot road in a city and it's 45 Mm. and um that in fact, I think I was reading something. You probably know about this, but I was reading something recently about all the all the trees that have been planted around Melbourne were designed for certain kind of climate, and we seem to be pushing it. That it might be that the trees are going to go beyond what the climate uh, makes, which means a whole bunch of iconic we, trees that people love will have to be replaced we'll, across the whole city. There's a lot that we could nerd out on um, <laughs> about plants. We got, we got two Melbourne, more minutes, so. but uh, <laughs> well, let's leave that for another show. Okay. And maybe just uh, comment on some of the news of the week very briefly. Okay. Can I comment really quickly? I don't have any more about this, but I will get onto it for next week with more information. I just heard on the ABC, uh, it it sounded like the kind of... um, part of a news report where they've literally just read off a media release, a couple of figures, not a whole lot of detail. The Australian Federal Police are claiming that they have saved the community $5.2 billion in, uh, in, in harms that would have been caused to the community if they hadn't seized all the drugs that they seized. And I'm really curious where that number comes from, that $5.2 billion and what goes in to make it up, because I have a feeling there's a whole lot of bullshit in there. <laughs> I, was like that. <laughs> I, I expect so. It's look, it's really common with that kind of stuff is it, it, drugs are complex. They interact, you know, and drug policing is complex. It interacts with a lot of different agencies, uh, a lot of different areas of society and measuring costs and benefits is 
you know, it's pretty challenging. There's a lot that you need to account for it in is. that. That's why we, um, uh, in fact, maybe, um, maybe I should get in contact with some economists that have their eyes on this sort of thing because they can pull apart these these numbers and show them for what they are. Because uh, economists are a bit like magicians in that way. They're hiding they're hiding the cards that they uh, are using for their for their magic tricks, so they can I don't know. It's it just feels a little bit like that sometimes. And I think that this five point two billion dollar figure, we need to ask exactly how was that saving the community what assumptions are in there um do you really think that uh people who didn't get the drugs uh that you think they were going to get didn't just find another way they stop only a very small proportion of those overall substances i it just sounds like a a pretty funny number to me the other news was new south wales did we speak about that on last show new south wales and uh gladys berejelkian's quote-unquote expert panel oh i don't think we i don't think we did touch on it so new south wales after the the unfortunate deaths at defcon one festival the premier initiated an inquiry into uh how to prevent these kinds of uh incidents happening again the expert panel consisted of the police commissioner i think somebody from the alcohol and gaming was it nick yeah and um one other person pill testing was not on the agenda people from the festival community were not invited to be present and the outcome of that inquiry was let's jack up the penalties let's (laughs) let's make this let's make it a crime if say you're a young person who happens to sort out their friend with a with a pill of ecstasy on the weekend and uh, we're now going to bring forward a, a a charge that could get you 15 it's, years or some nonsense. Let's get into this next week because we've got a full show this week and there's a lot more to get into about this and there's some better people than us that we can speak to about it who Absolutely. know a bit more. So we'll find those people and get them on the air next week. But this week we want to focus on psychedelics. Uh, you have had a chat with uh, Dean Wright from the Australian Psychedelic Society who's been focusing a lot on the integration circles. For anyone mm-hmm. interested, check out the Australian Psychedelic uh, society on social media or, or online psychedelicsociety.org.au uh, but also catching up with David Nichols who is a bit of a, a, a building a name for himself in the global psychedelic community um, and certainly agitating against uh, capitalism um, really I mean that's what I think it comes down to in a lot of ways um, but there are some very he, he's uh, he's joined the dots and he's joined the dots in a very specific way to pull out those personalities so it's not um, he He's, he's not a vagranter. He is. He is. He, you'll you'll hear. He's very passionate, and he knows what he's talking about. It takes us a little bit to get uh, our head wrapped around everything, and uh, I can tell you that we're going to pursue this more and keep our eye on the names that and names and organisations that he's talking about as this progresses, because uh, it's early days for. Um, for how psychedelic science and psychedelic medicines are going to be regulated as time goes by. But uh, let's get into the first one. You are listening to Shapeshifter Live When I Return.
Ash from Psychedelia, and I'm here with Dr. Dean Wright, our resident neuroscientist, for a bit of an update on what's happening in the world of psychedelic science. Indeed. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thank you, Ash. Now, I believe you had a uh, particular story of interest that you want to discuss today. Uh, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Uh, well, I heard there's been one going around in social media at the moment. It's been quite popular looking at uh, giving MDMA to octopuses. Oh, the octopus one. Yeah, we spoke about it on the show and um, it would be good to get a bit of an insight into it. Like, what, what does it mean? Why, why, why would you give MDMA to octopus? I know. I mean, you know, a lot of people <laughs> would probably enjoy just giving an octopus MDMA, but then, you know, there's a lot of ethical implications to doing that. So there was actually a rationale for doing the study. They didn't want to just see what happens. Um, basically, they looked at octopuses uh, to help understand the evolution of the serotonin system across different species. So they did what's called... And, and explain what the serotonin system is? So the serotonin system is one of the most basic neurotransmitter systems in the brain. And this is a neurotransmitter system that in humans is in charge of our basic functions and governs things like feeding, sleeping, arousal, uh, sexual arousal, not just normal arousal, um, and satiation uh, sensations as well. And I guess... Uh, serotonin is also been shown to be conserved uh, across a variety of different species. So it's it's been in the nervous system for a very, very long time, evolutionarily speaking. Um, so they did in this study, the aim was to do uh, look at how serotonin governs the sort of social aspect of our functioning. Um, and this is where MDMA sort of comes in because we all know MDMA is really good for increasing pro-social effects in ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes us empathetic. It makes us uh, bond with people. It makes us want to be closer to other people. Um, and and I, is, is that what they were curious about with the octopus, if they'd give each other a big eight-arm hug? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, octopuses are renowned for being asocial or antisocial. Um, you know, the, basically the only time they like to socialize is when they're going to mate, you know. So, and then it's usually males only wanting to socialize with females. And outside of those times, they don't really want to hang out with each other. Uh, males particularly do not want to hang out with other males. In fact, uh, that's where the antisocial behavior will come in. Usually they'll only be aggressive towards other males. Hmm. So the idea was, uh, if we affect the serotonin system, uh, primarily using MDMA, uh, do we see an increase in the prosocial effects in other octopuses, um, in other species outside of humans as well? So they actually designed a, a, their own behavioral uh, paradigm to measure this. Um, it's sort of based on what we do with other mammals as well. So we used to do this quite a bit with mice where you have three chambers. Uh, the, the mouse or the octopus will be in one chamber uh, in the middle chamber, there would either have been uh, an, a male octopus or a female octopus prior, or no octopus at all. And basically, what you measure is the amount of time that the octopus spends exploring the chamber where the other octopus was, or the third chamber where there's been no previous octopus. 
And basically what you see is that um, male octopuses would spend a lot of time investigating an area where a female octopus had been, uh, but they spend dramatically less time if a male octopus had been there previously. So they're sort of averse to the male. And so box. when you say had been, like how, how do they know? Is there like a scent or something that remains? They... Yeah, so that's a... I don't know the exact markers, but they talked about using a variety of different markers that octopuses leave behind. Right. Um, and they're sort of chemical signals, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I think they, they specifically use females that were in a, 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 an estrus period, if that's what you call it, in a, an octopus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be more attractive to males as well. And basically... At baseline levels, before they'd given them MDMA, they show that males spend dramatically more time with females uh, or in the area where females had been than the area where males had been. Um, and then they did the, the test where they soaked them in a tank of MDMA. Uh, <laughs> That's an interesting way to go about it. So yeah, I've they, never heard they... of dosing transdermally before, but, you know, there we go. So they just... Filled the water with, with some MDMA. Yeah, so there was a certain concentration of MDMA in the water and they put them in that tank for 20 minutes, I think. Then they put them in a, a tank that was just normal salt water and, and sort of gave them a bit of a rinse, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then uh, let the MDMA sort of set in before giving them the test. Right. And as you'd expect, when they gave them the test, they show that uh, the, the male octopuses then actually spend quite a bit of time in the other uh, male chamber and they actually put them in uh, they actually showed that they um, had when they put males side by side in different chambers after giving them MTMA there was actually an increase in the the drive to want to touch tentacles on their tank and actually reach out to them physically as well so kind of like kids touching hands through a glass wall or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It? A little right. bit of an ET moment, I guess. So like a high eight. <laughs> exactly, a high eight. <laughs> high is the sort of key word there. Yeah, okay. Um, so basically, yeah, they've showed that social, it increases sociability in octopuses. And this is an animal which is renowned for being asocial or antisocial. And I guess the sort of the big novelty or takeaway that this has shown is that this is a, a system which has been conserved throughout a variety of different species um, for, for millions and millions of years. Like octopuses are invertebrates and they, they diverged from our path in evolution a long time yeah, ago. Hundreds of millions of years ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess they then wanted to find out, you know, how do, how, when did it actually diverge? And this is where the sort of interesting genetic side of the study came in, where they actually did what they call a phylogenetic analysis. So that's uh, basically like an evolutionarily family tree um, or based on the genetics. And so they looked at 21 different species that sort of vary from uh, like flies, ants, wasps, worms, all the way up uh, through other invertebrates through mammals to humans. And they they specifically looked at the serotonin transporter. So the serotonin transporter is the, the thing that takes serotonin into the cell um, back up from the area where it activates everything else uh, and creates sort of firing in the brain or electrical activity in the brain. So the serotonin transporter is actually... The, the way that MDMA is taken into the cell as well. So without the serotonin transporter, MDMA wouldn't work. 
Right. So it's sort of like the roadblock to MDMA actually working. Right. So presumably if this experiment didn't work on a creature, then that might maybe one of the reasons because the MDMA just couldn't be transported. Yeah, exactly. So, and I guess there's, um, they, they, they measured specifically, uh, the area where MDMA binds to this transporter to get taken up into the cell. And they then did a genetic family tree to see which species had this area mm-hmm. and which species didn't. And I'll just have a quick look through the notes here, but I, uh, from memory, it was as far down as uh, the honeybee, fruit fly, and worm all had this binding site, um, but it wasn't in ants and wasps. So this is going well beyond uh, octopuses in terms of when where this site was actually conserved in evolution. Um, so it's even plausible that ev- there might be pro-social effects even within honeybees, which are renowned to be social animals as well. You know, they, they depend on sociability and ants who depend on sociability to, to survive and thrive. So it seems that this mechanism, that serotonin system, is actually a very, very ancient system and the its governing of social functioning has actually been around for a very long time as well. And is that what this experiment... What, what, is, what does this experiment tell us about the serotonin system and the functioning? So it specifically tells us that... Um, serotonin's effects on social functioning um, have been conserved specifically in the octopus and that's been shown experimentally and it's purported to have been conserved since millions and millions of years ago in evolution to when uh, ants diverged from other species. And um, is there future pathways that this now gives a, a bit of a roadmap to look in certain areas for further understanding? Um, what, what would this... What are the future pathways from this? I think it gives us a deeper understanding of the basic function of our brain and where it comes from and the basic function of how we fit into the animal kingdom a little bit. So I don't know if there's any specific experiments that would come out from this. Um, but it does open up a lot of avenues in our understanding um, in terms of the basic neuroscience architecture of our brain. Any more key features you want to highlight from this experiment? Um, no, I just think that it's a, it was a well-designed experiment and it was, it was pretty cool to, that they designed a, a novel way of measuring sociability in an animal which wouldn't normally be social. Um, and we got to see what happens when you give MDMA to an octopus. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks for joining us on Psychedelia, Dean. Thank you. That was Dr. Dean Wright from the Australian Psychedelic Society, our resident neuroscientist here at Psychedelia.
This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR, digital3cr.org.au. My name's Nick Wallace. Across from me, Ash Blackwell, and right now uh, on the line, um, wearing various hats over the ages, but I first knew you as a um, DMT Nexus um, moderator, uh, David Nichols. Uh, what other accolades would you like to attach along the line here? I mean, you've been writing for Reality Sandwich and um, a few other outfits. Yeah, I think all around degenerate uh, about covers it. <laughs> um, I try to do a lot of harm reduction work where I can, and I guess most recently um, focusing a little bit more on uh, cultural commentary and critiques and trying to make space for some of the more difficult conversations that I think we should be having in these spaces. I think that uh, I always, uh, I guess my introduction to you, I considered you a psychedelic activist and harm reduction worker. So I think, um, so one of the reasons we've got you on is um, I guess you've been putting forward a bit of a critique of some of the, the dominant narratives around the psychedelic science that maybe a lot of people have been hearing about and trying to tease apart uh, some of the nuances there. Do you want to sort of introduce us to, to what's been going on there. Sure. So I think the, the big story at the moment is um, the appearance of several for-profit, uh, venture-backed corporate entities that seem to be moving at a pretty breakneck pace to kind of get onto the psychedelic terrain. Um, this, of course, is... In the context of medicalization, this is in the context of making psychedelics into medicines um, and medicines that are working in conjunction in most cases with psychotherapy. So when we hear psychedelics being discussed as medicines, most frequently it's uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy where we're talking about the use of psilocybin or other compounds in conjunction with um, actual therapists that are present and they're not just as guides and sitters, but also to sort of help work through some of that material. And so the most um, controversial, shall we, shall we say, organization that's appeared at the moment is this company called Compass Pathways, but they're not really alone. There's another company called Elusis Benefit Corporation. Um, there's another company that's funding some, some of these different players in the space called Atai Life Sciences. And what's been really disturbing to me personally, uh, it's not only the, the people that are involved in this and the general for-profit approach, but the fact that we're at a really pivotal time when it comes to psychedelics, both as medicines and sort of in the public consciousness more generally. And so one of my concerns about the way things are unfolding is that um, there's what's called a first mover advantage in new markets. And what that essentially means is that when you're one of the first people that's able to sort of get onto the landscape, you can significantly shape what that landscape looks like. And while I would say most people in these spaces are probably aware that at this point, there's been a solid 12 years of recent psychedelic research going back to about 2006 and the Johns Hopkins studies into psilocybin uh, 
obviously there was Rick Strassman's DMT research as well. But, you know, as we look at this modern medicalization paradigm, all of the work that's gone on until now has really taken place in the context of research institutions and um, nonprofit uh, models of funding where there have been entities such as MAPS and Hefter, uh, the Beckley Foundation, and these um, you know organizations have essentially engaged in fundraising in order to secure the necessary money to make these psychedelic research efforts possible. But now as these different efforts have moved through different phases of um, research, we're kind of at a point where there's a pretty significant body of research that's fairly compelling to regulatory agencies. And you could say we're on the cusp of being able to make the case that psychedelics are in fact viable medicines, which means that there's this huge question of how do we bring these things to market in many people's minds? Um, a bunch of folks within these spaces have kind of decided that they feel the best way to bring these things to market is through a commodified um, for-profit venture-backed model because that's something that they feel scales really easily. And while, you know, if we look at capitalism more generally, I think we can agree that it, it's effective at scaling, but it's only effective at scaling if you don't consider the broader effects on the terrain, right? The IPCC just put out um, the report sort of detailing all of these global things that capitalism views as externalities and sort of the environmental consequences of focusing on growth without really considering what feeds that growth. And I think we're looking at a period of time where we're going to have to answer some of these questions within the psychedelic field um, or potentially, you know, not answer those questions and find out that most of these medicines have been largely privatized and um, turned into profit generating commodities. So, the, I mean, this is, this is sort of a, a bigger issue wrapped into a smaller issue because I think, um, that 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 argument might be able to be made at various. I mean, I, I can imagine myself making um, those arguments uh, with various uh, industries that we see in psychedelics. Is it is is it's been the the research has been relatively prohibited until relatively recently when we have seen that opening up of it, uh, where the access has been prohibited, where the the sort of transfer of knowledge has um, largely been in underground networks. But now we're seeing a, a changing of that. So it's a and if it does change and is is controlled through this sort of market mechanism that we see other pharmaceutical drugs um, uh, delivered and the that approach, then you you think there might be something lost in what we're trying to do in terms of the the treatment uh, using psychedelics on various conditions. Is that am I sort of getting close? Yeah, there's some of that. So if if we look at Compass, uh, Compass Pathways, it's a company that was founded by uh, George Goldsmith and his wife, uh, Katya Malevskaya, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Not 100% on that. But basically, um, Goldsmith comes from a, a background where he's worked He's essentially created platforms for different industry groups in the past. So he's got a history of working with folks in the banking regulatory sector and um, in working with military contractors and big pharmaceutical companies and things of that nature. And Compass has explicitly said that they're looking at getting into 
Um, I mean, if you look on their website and you look at some of their research partners, um, they're looking, they would like to, to engage in collaborations with groups like MindStrong and Seven Cups and Calm. And so these, these different groups that they're talking about, um, Calm is a meditation app. Seven Cups is, uh, they refer to it as an artificial intelligence therapy app that they're planning on using to uh, train some of their therapists. In addition to that, Seven Cups, I believe, is also a sort of peer-to-peer -peer therapy network. So if you can't find, uh, if you don't have access to a therapist, right, sort of the next best thing is in, in these folks' eyes is this, um, you could call it sort of the, the sharing economy of therapy, where you can find other people available on your own time. And in fact, Tom Insel and Paul Summergrad, uh, two Compass-associated people, were on a panel at Matt Psychedelic Science 17, along with George Goldsmith, the Compass founder, discussing the future of um, psychedelic psychiatry. And on that panel, they explicitly talk about using these sort of uh, sharing economy therapy approaches to to reach into markets uh, in places like India, where I think they said there's something like 1.2 billion people, but only about 4,000 therapists. And in that in that segment, they make the statement that in addition to basically providing these new sort of uh, decentralized models of therapy, they also stand to get data back from that therapeutic engagement. Now, getting that data back raises some interesting questions because I also raised uh, or pointed out that another one of their partners is this company called MindStrong. MindStrong is a competitor to Alphabet's uh, Verily, Alphabet is the parent company for Google. Verily and MindStrong are two companies that are looking to create what you might call uh, predictive AI health apps. Now, these are apps that would basically uh, measure your engagement with, say, your smartphone. And so these are apps that would ideally like to be able to tell you that you're depressed before you know you're depressed. So based on the way that you interact with your smartphone, let's say the sort of words that you're using, the length of your sentences, uh, maybe where you go based on the GPS tracking on your phone, things like that, based on your behavioral patterns, that app would ideally like to say, hey, this is what's going on with you as a um, as a person, this is this is the analytics we have for your mental health based on your interaction with your phone. Um, to take it one step further, uh, one of the major funders or one of the seeding funders of Compass was Peter Thiel. Uh, Peter Thiel is the guy behind Palantir which is a big data or surveillance company that essentially has created uh, an artificial intelligence algorithm uh, and suite uh, application that aggregates and creates really intuitive and visually slick interfaces for folks um, to monitor, aggregate, and sort of parse through data that's available from things like your social media interactions and other pu publicly available databases. So if we consider what went on with some of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and things of that nature, 
Uh, Palantir is pretty insidious. There's been a bunch of news reports on how it's been used to track tons of people, including folks who are selling drugs, um, large populations of immigrants in the U.S. And Palantir actually was just awarded a $7 million contract by the National Institute of Health in the U.S. in order to sort of aggregate and streamline big health data. So these are the players that are all sort of swirling around Compass, and it seems like there are some significant folks uh, and organizations, including MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, that are very eager to collaborate with Compass. Um, Personally, even if we, I'm a little bothered by that because even if we ignore all of those larger looming social questions, if we look at the much smaller terrain of psychedelic research, we've already seen Compass take steps like um, securing a uh, an exclusivity agreement with their psilocybin manufacturer. So at this point, there is a nonprofit company called USONA that would like to secure psilocybin. Now, in this particular case, it's a, a type of psilocybin called GMP psilocybin. That's good manufacturing processes. And that basically deals with the bureaucracy and um, components of putting together a medicine that's going to be released to a broad market. GMP designation essentially means that all of the different components of a particular drug can be tracked, can be traced back to their original batches, and essentially it's a regulatory necessity for drugs that are going to market. So in pursuit of GMP, Compass signed an exclusivity agreement with this pharmaceutical manufacturer called, named Onyx. Uh, and in the wake of that, USONA was unable to secure GMP psilocybin from Onyx and instead has had to go find other uh, manufacturers for that. I believe that they, they think that they're fairly close to securing that. But in the meantime, there are researchers who have been unable to engage in their research due to Compass's actions. Now, Compass wasn't ready to make use of that psilocybin. They simply did that in order to prevent other organizations from carrying out legitimate psychedelic research. Additionally, I believe Compass has filed for a methods patent around the, the synthesis of their GMP psilocybin, which is further evidence of the fact that they're operating in a way that, to my mind, and to the mind of many other researchers who've signed on to the statement of open science and open praxis, dealing with psychedelic research, um, it's kind of antithetical to the way that, that we've done and feel that psychedelic research should be done because rather than, than doing this work ideally for the good of humanity and in order to share the incredible potential of these compounds with our fellow human beings, in fact, Compass is operating in a way that seems fixated on maximizing profit for them and their shareholders, which I would contend is precisely what we should expect from a venture capitalist-backed for-profit corporation, and one of the reasons why I believe so strongly that they don't belong in this space. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. You're hearing the voice right now of David Nichols from the DMT Nexus and uh, various other places talking uh, a string of names, organisations, 
as individuals uh, who have been involved as uh, psychedelic research has continued on, as MAPS is preparing uh, to have a, a medicine that is available on the market and as the companies uh, that are going into to make that happen and make other uh, psychedelics uh, potentially available as uh, uh, medicines, um, the the sort of the battles that begin to happen around how capitalism then begin, begins to work and, and, and the groups that get involved and their motivations. But then also, I mean, a part of this, I'm getting a little bit nervous listening uh, along, feeling like this sort of thing has uh, happened before. It sounds a lot like how in the early days of um of computing science although there was uh, uh in the early days of the internet there was a, a lot of in- involvement with um uh the uh, secret service with um darpa um building the original internet um there was also a, a sort of open source ethic among a lot of people that were um uh creating the backbones of computing of the internet uh this this idea that we should be doing things uh, for the for the good of humanity and that's I'm just sort of struck by that, I guess, at this time. But also, Ash. Yeah, so I I was at a conference recently, David, where um, somebody who had worked on a harm reduction program here in Melbourne spoke about the way that collaborating with the police um, in a a productive way in the festival space helped build relationships and kind of change the way that police approached it. So in the state that I'm in here in Victoria, that relationship's been going on for, um, well, pretty much for a couple of decades now. So there's there's people within the harm reduction festival space that have an ongoing positive relationship with police. And one of the things that he mentioned was that in New South Wales, where a similar program's just started up, that relationship is still developing. And so I guess one of the... Um, one of the kind of criticisms, I guess, that I've heard of your uh, crit- critique of the way this is happening is people will say that, you know, collaborating with places like the military, um, for example, might help to reshape their approach rather than rather than them co-opting, I guess, the psychedelic uh, experience um, for their own purposes, that experience might change the dynamic of those companies or organizations so which which leads me to a question um is it just the particular players in this because you mentioned some of these ties which you know they obviously sound quite insidious like going up to uh data mining and and the way that that could be used um by some of these organizations so i guess my my question is is it the way that they're collaborating with business and some of these organizations in general or the specific players that they're collaborating with that you have the the major concern about totally um and i think it's kind of both um and so to speak briefly to the police obviously being from the u.s i'm in a very different context than y'all um, and I would like to comment, you know, I've, I've done harm reduction work at the Boom Festival. I've done harm reduction work at a bunch of other festivals as well. And when I was last at Boom in 2016, there were actually two deaths that year. And for one of the deaths, the police actually brought the drugs to check-in um, where we were running thin layer chromatography and handed over the drugs to us to, to analyze because they knew that we would be able to turn that around more quickly than their lab. Uh, and so, you know, I definitely think in those real world harm reduction 
settings and contexts. Like there's definitely room for collaboration, um, particularly when we look at some of the, the real world benefits that can come from that engagement in the moment. Um, also for me being in Portugal at that time, where drugs are decriminalized and the whole context around policing is fundamentally different than what it looks like in the US where we have for-profit prisons, where we have a, a huge number of folks rotting behind bars from uh, the war on some people who use certain drugs. Um, you know, we've got a skyrocketing number of immigrant detention facilities is the euphemism, but we're literally watching right? Families being separated. We're seeing cases of children being detained, children being brought into courtrooms by themselves, being forced medicated, um, being the victims of, of abuse. And so for me, right, there, there are still fundamental issues with the police as an institution, even if there are moments where I have engaged in certain collaborations in the context of doing psychedelic or drug harm reduction work. Now, looking at something like the corporatization of psychedelic spaces, um, I think one of the things that comes up, you know, and, and this has been kind of challenging for me because in some ways I'm, I'm putting aside some of my personal politics around some of this, right? Like for me, um, I would like to live in a world where we don't have to engage in competition with each other for our profits, right? Where, where at the end of the day, in my, my survival isn't determined on being able to sell my labor to someone else, have part of me sort of exploited and, and ultimately need to figure out, um, can I figure out a way to bring in enough money that at the end of the year, I bring in more money than uh, I spend. However, that is the reality of the system we're in. And even as I'd like to work to change that, that's where we're at at this moment. So in that context, I think it's worth making a distinction between sort of these venture capitalist backed uh, for-profit funds that are obligated by law to maximize shareholder uh, profits. Um, I'm not really talking about so much. I, I'm, I'm less concerned by a model where we're talking about almost a cottage industry of psychedelic therapists where maybe if we could imagine this sort of like general practitioners or uh, personalized doctors, right, where I mean, I'm a glassblower, right? At the end of the year, I need to bring in more money um, than I spend on supplies and materials and rent. So too, you know, if, if I see a, a uh, private practitioner who runs her own practice, you know, at the end of the year, she needs to be able to bring in more money than she spends on her practice. Um, and again, that's just the reality of where we're at. Now, to me, that's a fundamentally different situation than if we're talking about a company like Atai Life Sciences, which is this brand new uh, venture capital fund that is a major investor in Compass. I think they've put in something like 20 or $25 million uh, into <clears throat> Uh, into Compass, they've got something like um, uh, 25% or 20% of uh, of Compass um, as far as far as part of their holdings, right? And ultimately, 
looking at, uh, sorry, Atai owns about 25% of Compass, and Atai has raised about $25 million from investors, including people who are in the cryptocurrency arena. I think the two Calm app uh, developers, who I, I mentioned Calm earlier, um, they've also invested in Atai. Uh, there are a whole range of, of people who've put money into this company. And the, the guy behind Atai, this guy named Christian Angermeyer, who's also a separate investor in Compass, um, he's basically said that he views psychedelics as a virgin market. And so, to my mind, the notion of turning psychedelics into a commodity where the goal is to figure out how they can maximize profit margins. Um, to me, that feels antithetical to many of the lessons that I've received from my own psychedelic use. I, and so in this case, it, it's easy for me to say this is, this is related to these characters and these particular actors, but I would say more generally, this sort of scheme where what's driving the whole endeavor is profits and the idea of people being able to get their return on investment and engaging in practices of interference in order to maximize those profits, that seems like a problematic approach to me. I think you've already uh, alluded to a few things that could be a little bit problematic talking about the uh, the big data, the collection of big data, the analysis of that data, and then what you can start to predict about people. I mean, something like a, an app that can predict your mindset sounds great for health reasons, but of course, there's always a dark side to these things. If you can do that, then can you also then push people into certain kinds of emotional states? We know that some of the big social media companies have already tried that. So perhaps looking at these, who's investing where and, and what they're uh, what they're trying to do. We, we are also in an age of information warfare, of information being um, uh, being used in ways to manipulate political and economic goals um, even more so. And it seems to be getting more and more bizarre as we see uh, these, these large sort of botnets activated in order to uh, push elections one way or another or push public uh, opinion polls one way or another on, on issues. And I think we're not really quite aware of all of this that is going on then to add uh the the sort of the qualities of the psychedelic experience to this whole equation and and looking at the the motivation of of in capitalism i mean we all we all know in social media we're all scrolling through our, our facebook news feed because they've designed them to be like that because when it's maximizing profit, you've got to maximize attention on that. Maybe there's a bit of concern that that same kind of mindset will go into the development of how um, how psychedelics end up playing out. They're, we are entering strange times and um, following um, – the, I mean, there's, there's a lot of names, there's a lot of organizations and people might be a bit confused along the way because we almost need one of those um, – one of those just a wall <laughs> with newspaper I'm, clippings I'm all over it. Yeah, good. I'm glad. <laughs> Um, I promise. <laughs> and I think we need to we need to um, talk more uh, about this, David, but we are just about out of time now, but maybe we could um, just finish on this uh, on this convergence issue of multiple sort of technologies and 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 of people looking to sort of weaponize these for their own benefit, information benefit for their own power, for their own economic benefit. Totally. Yeah. I think one of the things that, that kind of stands out in this context is uh, China's social credit system. You know, if, if we've got apps 
that are engaged in predictive AI, right? If we've got apps where the tagline is essentially, it knows you're depressed before you know you're depressed. I mean, what if it doesn't just know you're depressed? What if it, it's capable of saying, hey, this looks like you're engaged in deviant behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, the notion that, um, that Palantir and Peter Thiel are not only behind all of these um, policing maneuvers and, and uh, you know, deportations via immigration and customs enforcement. And there was a secret policing program in New Orleans where they went after drug traffickers. And, you know, the fact that they just got this large contract with the National Institute of Health and they're also partnered in here, you know, to me, it, it starts to raise questions about what is being tracked, what might end up being tracked through big data. And really, I think the looming question as a number of big names in psychedelics, um, people who are working for MAPS have literally said to me, this is inevitable. I mean, I feel like one of the questions we all have to ask is, well, if this is inevitable, are, are we really excited about handing over the keys to some of the most potent compounds known to, to humanity, right? And some of the most potent um, compounds for affecting our experiences of reality to the people who are also behind all of these various social control schemes. I mean, to me, you know, I've been talking about my concerns about, um, you know, mainstreaming in the context of questions around militarization and what are the implications for American imperialism to be able to, to dose soldiers with MDMA and tell the population, hey, we don't have to worry about traumas. You know, at the end of the day, we can integrate these folks back into society or being cautious about what happens if, you know, we have we have skyrocketing rates of PTSD in drone operators and the notion of being able to say, don't worry about that. We've got a maintenance maintenance therapy for our drone operators. It's MDMA. Um, That all kind of pales in comparison as I've started to put more of the different players in this compass story together, because to me, the the potential for social control, um, some of the action that some of these actors have already taken, it seems pretty alarming. And to me, uh, as much as I'd like to talk about psychedelic experiences and the liberatory potential and, and the really amazing therapeutic effects that can come from them, it seems like some of these social issues are really pressing because, like I said, it comes back to this concept of first mover advantage. And, you know, if some of these companies are able to get on the terrain and really solidify themselves, they're going to have a, a, a window of time in which they're going to be working to make themselves essential to the terrain. In fact, some of these companies have put out white papers where they explicitly talk about different strategies for how to make themselves essential to the terrain. And I've read those papers. I plan on making those papers available in a, in a forthcoming piece that I'm currently working on that will try to, try to detail all of these uh, connections. There's quite a few of them. But, you know, for me, every time I go back and sort of check some of those papers and their strategies, and then I see the news updates that have happened over, you know, the last few months, uh, it's pretty alarming. And, and I really appreciate y'all for making time to, to talk about this stuff. David, we really appreciate you keeping your eye on it and, uh, and, and figuring out who is doing what and what's doing what. 
because um, keeping up with it all can be hard and I think it's uh, important that we keep our eye on it, especially in these strange times. Thank you very much, David, for chatting to us today. Thank you, for sure. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.